Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Ear Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetearstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. My guest today is Allison Jenkins of Damson Farm. Allison trained as a garden designer before making her small holding of Damson Farm into a resource for learning about the interrelationship of gardens and the natural world and how caring for one is caring for the other. She hosts workshops, many of them rooted in the principles of permaculture, which focus on observing natural ecosystems and creating gardens which function ecologically, providing nourishment, and look beautiful too. Welcome to the program, Allison. So happy to have you. Thank you for having me. And so I wanted to begin by asking you just to talk a little bit about your work at Damson Farm. I'm um, an organic gardener with a background in design, and I manage Damson Farm, which is a small holding which I run with ecological principles as a guiding hand. And I run workshops here which have a, a linking theme of sustainability, regenerative gardening practices, and nature connection. And how did you come to this work? Well, I started off in the art world. Um, so my I did a degree and then an MA in history at Goldsmiths College in London. And then I worked in the art world in London as an exhibition organiser, places like the Photographer's Gallery and Serpentine Gallery, Crafts Council. But I started to feel a bit restless there. I kind of knew the art world really wasn't where I was meant to be. And so... Yeah, I took a, a City and Guilds course in horticulture and also a, a theoretical course run by the RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society. And yeah, I gave up the exhibition work and started working as a maintenance gardener in South London, just looking after people's gardens, just learning, um, learning the ropes that way. And then my clients started to ask me to design gardens. And so... I went to the English Gardening School, at the, which is based at the Chelsea Physic Garden, and did a design diploma there. And then I, I set up a design studio in London. So I've been designing gardens probably for 20 years. But yeah, probably about four or five years ago, just started to feel I kind of needed a shift in direction. And just thinking much more about the ecological crisis and questions about how to live differently um, and wanting my work to engage more directly with those sorts of issues. Yeah, that's how I've come to be running workshops, really. <laughs> and can you describe the growing space at Damson Farm? Yeah, so it's a two-acre, which I think is just less than a hectare, site in a quite sheltered valley just outside Bath. It's about 10 minutes out of the city, but it feels very rural. And we're on clay soil. It's quite wet. We've got lots of springs running down the hillside. Um, it's really good topsoil. It's really deep topsoil. And the, the valley has a history of orchards and market gardening. When I've looked at old maps from 1850, it seems to be one of the areas that was used for market gardening. So, so yeah, we've got views kind of out 
towards across the other side of the valley. There's a patchwork of pasture land with hedges and trees. Luckily, it's a fairly steep-sided valley, so it's not really suitable for large-scale farming. Mm -hmm. So there's still um, dairy farmers here in the valley. And this episode will air in late winter, early spring. What does that mean in your garden? What do you what do you usually see? Well, I guess I really like winter. I like seeing the bare bones of the garden, really. So the hedges that we planted 10 years ago now have become quite fat, established hedges I tend to maintain them in quite naturalistic forms so they're quite rounded so they they really echo the rounded forms you see in the the wider landscape and then the planting areas I tend to cut back the perennials in February so we've still got lots of kind of skeletons and seed heads and grasses as well it's a really frosty morning this morning it's nice to keep those and and you know you get that lovely effect of the frost in the morning and all yeah. you know it's just love picking up those sort of little seeds on the ground as well so but there's quite a lot going on in the edible garden you know I can see the little shoots of um, the shallots and the garlic coming up and then in the greenhouse there's lots of winter salads and it's full to bursting with all the hardy annuals that I've sown and the broad beans and the sweet peas all just waiting in the yeah. spring. Yeah, it's a good time of year. Wonderful. Can you tell a little bit about each space that you have? Can you describe those a little bit? Yeah, so so much of the space is a hillside, but the area around the house and stretching out from the house is a level area of land. So that's the bit that we would call the garden, I suppose. So Um, From my background as a designer, I was always really interested in perennial planting, interesting plants and spent a lot of time going around nurseries. So I've got quite a collection of perennials, unusual shrubs and climbers. So, you know, I'm always experimenting with that sort of planting. So those are the areas that wrap around the house and then leading out from the house and the rest of the level garden is the edible garden. So I've got a greenhouse there and yeah, lots of raised beds. And then leading up the hillside, there's an orchard with plums, damsons, apples, pears, and that's all in the sort of meadow area as well, which we're working on to improve the diversity. Um, We've got chickens and then going through to the next field, there's, there's edible hedges, newly planted edible hedges. And then in the top field, we keep sheep. There's a big pond there. And we've got natural springs running through. So that the pond is naturally spring fed. And that leads through to various troughs and rills and things like that that go through the garden. And we're also establishing um, a woodland in that top field as well mm. with hazel and, and oaks too. Beautiful. What a wonderful space. And I should say, I was able to see some photographs in the Garden Illustrated profile. I will certainly link to that because it's such a beautiful um, representation. Yeah. And what is your daily, weekly practice in the garden? How often are you out? What are you doing in each season? Well, I'd love to be out there every day, but (laughs) (laughs) life doesn't really allow for that. Constantly juggling all sorts of things as most of us. So I have at least one day during the week that I devote to the garden and ideally quite often two. 
we started having help from woofers about five or six years ago. I don't know if you know about the woofing scheme, no. but it's worldwide and it was set up in the 70s. Um, it stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. So it's a means by which people can come and stay on an organic farm and work on the land in return for accommodation and food. So that system's worked really well for us over the years because before that, you know, I was trying to fit in managing the land weekends and evenings and, you know, I had a small child and I was running a business, running my garden design business. Yeah, that was a really tricky juggling act. So somebody mentioned woofing to me and, and actually that's been brilliant. We've had some great people coming through. Normally, you know, they might stay for three weeks at a time. I mean, sometimes people just come for a day if they're local, mm -hmm. quite often three weeks. But we've just had a couple of woofers who have just left now, but they were with us for nearly two years. So they came to us just before lockdown and they've been with us that whole time, which has been great. So so generally Tuesday is a day where I work with the team. You know, sometimes I have occasional volunteers as well. So I have to be pretty organised about that. So I tend to draw up a, a kind of mind map, really, for the seasonal tasks. So I'll mm -hmm. have an idea of what the scope of the tasks we might be tackling over that particular season. And then I'll also do one for each day so we can start the day looking at the scope of work so that people have got an idea of what's coming really that was an idea I came upon from um, Fergus Garrett who runs Great Dixter and I, I was part of a webinar where he was showing me these great really visual mind maps of the garden tasks and I thought oh that's so much clearer than just a conventional list and something yeah. feels a bit less dictatorial somehow mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so we have a team day on Tuesday and then if I can I'll also work in the garden on Thursday and that might be a one-to-one -one or you know I might get time to work in the garden myself so I'm trying to have the, the work in the garden as part of the working week rather than trying to fit it in the weekend and my, my daughter's 13 now so I'm really aware that there's she won't be around for too much longer she'll be off so you know those family times are quite precious. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I think a snip of Fergus Garrett showing that, that mind map and it um, really did seem brilliant. I'm so impressed that you were able to incorporate it because it really, it makes so much sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And when we sort of talk about you as a gardener today, what were your early influences? Did you always garden? Is that how you were raised or was it something that only came about after art school and your time in the art world? No, I didn't. I didn't really garden. You know, I wasn't one of those children whose, whose parents gave them an area in the garden of their own. But between the ages of seven to 11, we lived in Wales. and We had a really magical garden there. I have really vivid memories of it. It had a big old oak tree in the middle with a tire swing. And it had a little summer house that was on wheels so you could revolve it. Oh, cool angle to the sun it had a little pond it had a sunken rose garden it had a, a weeping cherry that I, I would go in and it would become like a little secret hideaway place and a scots pine that I would climb and and it was just a really magical space and then when I was 11 we moved to Shropshire 
moved to a small market town in Shropshire and the garden there was a similar size but it was I remember at the age of 11 thinking oh this garden just feels wrong there's something about it that felt wrong it was you could see it all in one go and it had neat beds of roses and I was so disturbed by it that I <laughs> we had a big copper beech tree and I found a seedling and I thought oh this garden needs filling up and I planted the seedling right in the middle of the garden <laughs> <laughs> just had the sense that it just didn't feel quite right so I no, I didn't do any garden apart from planting that copper beech tree that grew into a beautiful mature tree I sort of retreated into houseplants so I created this little mini rainforest of houseplants in my teenage bedroom and you know it wouldn't have wouldn't have occurred to me that gardening could really be a career option really you know at school it was it was always the kids who you know weren't going to take exams who got to go with was a little greenhouse right. School and you know I didn't know you could go and work in a botanic garden or be a landscape gardener or anything like that really so yeah it was much later that I came to it was always there in a sort of latent way but yeah. it really emerged much later on. I love that you had that response to what was wrong with it it speaks kind of I guess to your design and art side that you really knew what the fix would be. There was just no magic in that garden. Yeah. Yeah, in the way that there had been for in the garden in Wales. Yeah, and can you tell a little bit more about what you look for in a garden now, or even how you think about designing that magic? Well, it's something I'm I'm kind of really interested in. Why we are compelled to make gardens, and I think the gardens I'm drawn to are the ones that feel quite immersive, and I think it's to do with. You know, I do ask myself this question, you know. Why do we make gardens? And I think it's to do for me with thinking about origins as a species and that we would have been so much more intimately connected with the natural world. And I think making gardens is a, is a sort of has to do with that longing for that connection. You know, so many of us, you know, we like going to the coast or going to the mountains or you wouldn't sit in a landscape and say, oh, that rocks in the wrong place or right. <laughs> <laughs> it should be a bigger tree there you know it's yeah. just about it that feels right so that's what I always look for in a garden is something that just feels right so yeah those are the gardens you know I don't like going to gardens where I feel like oh I'm meant to be impressed by the mm-hmm. cleverness of this garden or yeah so I think that's that's what garden making is about, really having a little bit of that sense of immersion, but on our doorstep, you know, making it accessible. Absolutely. Have you read Sue Stewart Smith's Well Garden Mind? Oh, yes, I've got that on, on Audible. Yeah, it has a, a few of the same themes, kind of, I guess, more from the, the psychological side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And are there any plants that you remember either from that garden in Wales or at any point in your life that you still like to include or any plants that you think if you had to move, you would always want to plant in a garden? Well, I really remember the flocks that we had in that garden in Wales and the scent of that flocks, you know, that's very evocative. Yeah. And I remember my grandmother's garden in, in Leon C in Essex. It was just a small town garden, but she had this amazing apricot tree. And I've, I've tried to... <laughs> 
<laughs> when we first moved here, you know, I thought, I've got to have an apricot tree. And I, I planted two against south facing walls, but they don't really seem to like it here. I think it's just that we do get frosts rolling down the hill. Yeah. They blossom beautifully in February, but yeah, they haven't fruited very well. Yeah. So I've got very potent memories of, of her garden. That's wonderful. I think gardening has so many memories and underpinning what we are drawn to in our later life. It's one of the things I kind of love about, about the whole experience. And what do you take inspiration from today? Well, I suppose, you know, I've spent years being really engaged in learning about the mechanics of gardening and the how-tos. But I think these days I'm I'm kind of more interested in the, well, not more interested, but as interested in the the wider context. So mm-hmm. writers like Robert McFarlane and Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding mm-hmm. Sweetgrass is one of my absolute favourite books. And just thinking about, as human beings, our relationship with the land, with the wider natural world. And I love the way that Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about reciprocity and nurturing that deep respect for the land and all that it has to offer and seeing plant life, flowers, fruits as as gifts from nature, really. And I think Western culture, we've got so used to seeing nature as something to be exploited to our own ends and losing sight of the fact that you know we are just a piece of this jigsaw this wider ecosystem and if we don't respect it it will it will fail so yeah I love that sort of writing what you've written about in your interest in permaculture can you describe what drew you to permaculture or kind of how you think of it as a, an application in the garden Yeah, well, that's directly related, I suppose, because essentially permaculture is looking at the ecosystems in nature as a model and as a means to being efficient with your resources. So if you look at a woodland, a woodland doesn't require anybody to water it or fertilise it itself. (laughs) And I mean, a lot of permaculture thinking is common sense thinking that a lot of people will be practicing without really calling it permaculture and I'm really interested from having a garden design background how there's a world of garden design and there's a world of permaculture that doesn't seem to be much crossover and it feels like there could be something really interesting in bringing those two things together totally because I think there's a certain you know permaculture it feels like it's been quite ghettoized in a way and there's certain associations visual associations that you might have with permaculture in terms of the type of gardening you might practice as a permaculturalist and you know which often might be quite functional whereas I think you know I'm quite interested in beauty as well and and how we as human beings are really drawn to beauty have it's quite an important element to us and that I think can often be sidelined in permaculture, but it can be a, a real, quite a, a potent way to draw people in, I think. So, yeah, I'm really interested in exploring that. Yeah. How do you include it in your garden? Do you have an example of somewhere that you're considering it? Yeah, I suppose, I don't know, kind of in terms of the beauty side of things, but I often use permaculture as a, as a because, it, you know, permaculture is so much more 
than just gardening I suppose right. it, you can apply it to all sorts of things in your life and it's I find it quite useful as a system of thinking or approaching a problem really mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I think oh I'll, I'll think about that problem with my permaculture hat on yeah. so, so for instance with the meadow you know we don't have machinery here particularly so when it comes to the end of the summer and you know the grass needs cutting because it's it's been left long you know in the past we might have asked a farmer to come and bring a tractor in or borrow machinery from a neighbor or partner and I will get the strimmer out and that's a really horrible job (laughs) and it's noisy and you have to put fuel in it and then the strimmer breaks and then a couple years ago I thought well maybe we should just scythe the meadow and I think that's one thing again we're just so used to thinking of solutions to problems in terms of what's quick, what's cheap, what's convenient, whereas mm-hmm. if you've got a permaculture lens on it, you know, the priorities become different. So I thought, well, maybe we could have a workshop on scything. You know, we could invite somebody to come and teach scything and then invite a group of people to come and, and to learn. So they would be gaining some knowledge. I get the, the medicine. Yeah. But also, you know, there's a group of people having fun and learning. And you know, that's another permaculture thing is you can think of a yield in terms of what you get back from the effort you're putting in as a social yield. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be a monetary yield or yield in terms of produce like food from the garden. You know, if it's giving you a a social benefit enabling you to meet new people make connections pass on knowledge yeah it's interesting that it gives you different ways of coming up with solutions to yeah a different mind network almost yeah yeah what I love about that idea of teaching a group and undertaking a project is it reminds me so much of how historically communities did work together to, you know, the example in the U.S. is always the barn raising, you know, and also I think processing harvests and that kind of everyone coming together and having that. Yeah. Yeah, It's wonderful to reintroduce that. Yeah. 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 And just, you know, simple things like sharing machinery or Mm -hmm. does every house in a valley have to have their own apple press, you know, you share an apple press or a, strimmer or you know all yeah. of those things and there are more conversations along those lines now I think it's quite an interesting moment where you know an awareness of resources and and environmental issues are you know, they're much more at the forefront of people's minds and trying to come up with ways of doing things differently mm-hmm. yeah this brings us to your workshops obviously not able to attend any because I'm in Berkeley, California, (laughs) but you had a wonderful series of of workshops on offer and not all of them were specifically garden mechanics. They were, some of them were more art-based to know how you kind of think about those creative activities being part of the garden and and still shaping our experience there. Well, when I was putting the workshop program together, I, I wanted there to be quite a strong theme running through So really, I'm kind of looking for subjects that deal with issues around sustainability, but also encourage nature connection, because I think if people feel more connected to the natural world, they are more likely to care about it and want to do something about 
saving it. So some of the workshops are are to do with perhaps encouraging kind of close observation of plants. So maybe botanical drawing or there's somebody called Ali Sylvester who does a a leaf printing workshop. And so she used brambles and, and nettles to create the most exquisite prints. And when you really look up close at the detail of a bramble leaf, when it's, particularly when it's in the form of a print, it somehow kind of enhances all of that. You realize how exquisite they are. And, you know, in gardening often, you know, it's so steeped in sort of, traditional ways of doing things or categorizing things as good or bad and you might think of oh brambles and nettles got to get rid of those you know there's no place for them in the garden but so it's trying to sort of think about things differently and if you become aware that you know nettles are a really good food source for you know butterfly larvae for instance you you see a patch of nettles and think oh great, that's some useful habitat. I'll, I'll leave that particular patch. You know, I might get rid of them over there or if they're growing amongst the roses or something. So yeah, so going back to the workshops, it's that kind of sense of close observation, maybe looking quite closely at the structures of plants, the way they're put together. And there's a cyanotype workshop as well. And that's just really fascinating when you see how those prints come out and yeah. really appreciate how the structures different grasses for instance and, and that sort of thing so yeah so some of the workshops are you know they might cover composting or soil health or seed saving but yeah all designed to create deeper connection and perhaps a also kind of sense of confidence in people that they can do things for themselves so mm-hmm. say with seed saving giving people the skills and confidence saying okay I could save some of my own seed um got a workshop coming up on in the autumn on on using plants for dyes natural dyeing making inks or you know dyeing fabric so just looking at plants as our ancestors have done in terms of how they could be useful and yeah you don't necessarily have to go out and buy everything if you've right. got the skills to, you know, see what's around you and there might be plants you could forage and use for maybe forage some hazel shoots from, you know, a friend's hedge where you could make some plant supports or you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. It's so true. When someone introduces you to a new way of looking at something, you suddenly see it everywhere and it just sort of changes mm-hmm. your, your whole way of experiencing yeah. Yeah, yeah. different spaces. Yeah. It's such a wonderful moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when we're making the hazel structures, I'm, you know, I'm walking through the landscape, you know, yeah. looking at the hedges and, you know, looking you're looking for whips everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the courses that I thought was really interesting was your edible design course. And I think, especially because it's such a wonderful way, I think, to bring people into the garden. Can you describe a little bit about that course? Any key principles? Yeah, okay. When I was putting the program together, I very much wanted to invite people who were specialists in areas that you know weren't my area of knowledge, partly because it's really exciting to learn from other people. Um, but because my background is in design and I've got a particular interest in edible gardening, I thought it would make sense for you know for the courses I run myself to focus on that area and I'm really interested in encouraging people to grow their own food because that's just quite a good way in you know if you're feeling like well what you know what can I do what changes can I make in my lifestyle that could 
improve my carbon footprint, for instance. And, and growing your own food is, you know, it's something quite positive that you can do. It doesn't involve giving something up. Quite hard for people to change habits. You know, I, I know that for myself, you know, yeah. I know certain habits I'd like to change and it's really hard to, to do that. So trying to make growing your own food sort of accessible to try and mm-hmm. give people confidence to have a go. You know, if people haven't gardened before, they can get quite worried about how to do it properly and and just trying to make it easy in a way or applicable to their own lives or their own situation and so not to feel like you know because it's easy to go out and buy a book on vegetable growing thinking okay you know I'll get my carrot seeds and my potatoes and my peas and feel that you've got to do it all but I try to encourage people to think about what do they actually really eat yeah <laughs> you know maybe maybe they can just grow salad and that's fine you don't have to grow potatoes and cabbages and do the whole thing you could grow lovely salads and black currants and and then you could buy your potatoes and cabbages from your you know maybe you've got a local market garden that you want to support and I always start off with this question of well why why do you want to grow your own food and dig into that a little bit and try to get people to really think quite carefully about what is it that's motivating them to want to do that because it's quite an interesting question in terms of it, it uncovers so much about that that kind of instinct as well to you know how how it feels good to be self-sufficient in something mm-hmm. if it's just basil or, yeah. or lettuce and I think again it, it connects back to that ancestral memory you know from when we were started farming 12,000 years ago and that sense of reassurance that it would bring if you could grow some of your your own food um, yeah. so yeah I really enjoy doing that and that's why I do in quite a small group of just six people usually um, so it gives people plenty of opportunity to talk about their own situations and because everyone's very different. And I get them to think quite carefully about, again, this is a kind of bit of a permaculture thing as well, but really just to be honest with themselves about what their resources are, just in mm-hmm. terms of their energy and their time and the money they want to allocate to it so that they can design a space that really works for them. So mm-hmm. it's not... You don't want a garden to be something that becomes overwhelming. You kind of want it to suit your particular lifestyle. So it shouldn't necessarily be something that you've seen in a magazine, that idea of what a vegetable garden should be. I think any garden really should really be very personal and unique to the person who's made it or owns it or or tends it, whatever that situation is. For me, those are the most interesting gardens, the ones that are quite unique and characterful, and to encourage people to really, really to l- listen to what it is in themselves that that they need that garden to be, you know, listen to that, and then also listen to the land or the space that they have and what that's telling them is possible. Right. Foraging in your own garden or finding something, eating something from your own garden, especially kind of in hand right in that moment is such a pure pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something with my daughter, you know, I remember once saying to her, oh, you know, come and help me, come and help me pick the tomatoes. And I said to her, you know, I want you to have that memory of picking tomatoes and how it smells when you pick the tomato directly from the plant, because 
you're more likely to do that when you're older, if you remember doing it. And she just said to me, of course I'll grow tomatoes when I'm older. As if, you know, it was like, well, of course yeah. I'll do it. And I mean, it's not that she's a big gardener, really. She doesn't often show that much interest. But I like the fact that she, you know, for her, it's, it's normal for us to go. Yes pick a salad in the evening or the greens for dinner is instilled in her so it's it's more likely to emerge in her later on when she's older absolutely that's so wonderful to consider that that's not even gardening that's just life yeah 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 <laughs> and how have you involved her over time in the garden how does that work in your family well I did give her a bed one of my precious raised beds in the, in the <laughs> you know and at times in the past she's been quite enthusiastic about planting things out and one year she said oh I just want to do plants for bees and she did that but then I couldn't honestly claim that she's really an enthusiastic gardener she might then just abandon it for months at a time yeah. but she does do things like sometimes her friends come around and they'll say oh let's go and get the cucumelons from the greenhouse and I'm thinking I don't even really think that you'd notice that I've grown cucumelons this year yeah. so it does it's there and actually to be honest I don't need her to be an enthusiastic gardener for me it's more about instilling a sense of connection yeah. um, and whether that's we do go for lots of walks together and she you know we did one of the, the southwest coastal path this year and I I could see she just she did really love it I could see her feeling that in a kind of a bodily way you know quite deeply mm-hmm. and we go swimming together we do quite a bit of wild swimming so it's kind of just instilling that sense of connection with the landscape really that I think is important and whether she gardens when she's older it's up to her really right right but but having that connection is so wonderful and based on your experiences with gardening and young people or people who you've been training how do you think that we can bring more people into the garden I think it's just making it feel accessible really and not being too hung up on the traditional ways of doing things, you know, encouraging kind of experimentation and, and the idea that things don't have to be too perfect. Yeah, I think particularly in this garden, you know, so much of gardening has kind of been framed in a very traditional way. But I, yeah, encouraging younger people to get into gardening. I see it quite a lot in the farming world, actually. I mean, that's an area that I'm kind of really interested in, the conversations that go on in, say, with the Oxford Real Farming Conference that happens every January. There's some really interesting discussions there about not only deeply practical issues like soil health, but also about spirituality, about access to land, colonialism, and, you know, the recessions that involve meditation and folk songs. It's quite a lot of energy and quite progressive thinking there that I sometimes don't feel there's enough of in the horticultural establishment in, in this country. So, but I do see a lot of younger people, you know, we see meet quite a lot of them through the booking scheme who mm-hmm. really want to work on the land, feel really drawn to it. So, you know, that's really quite encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially because it almost seems like there is more interest in it at a time when there might be less access. And so somehow 
people realize that this is important and are going out beyond their doorstep to find an opportunity to engage with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is work that's being done around that and conversations that are being had around that access to land. Yeah, I remember when I first started getting interested in gardening, I was living in rented houses in London. You know, I spent all of my 20s and early 30s living in rooms in in rented houses, but I I had an allotment and that was, it. I didn't own it, but it felt like it was my land. Nobody was going to take it away from me unless I just abandoned it. Yeah, that was really important to me, especially being in the city and having that space. It was quite a big site. So there were views all the way around from Crystal Palace to the Dome, quite panoramic Mm. views in the distance of, of London and just having that space to go to really kept me sane in the city. Yeah. The allotment scheme is such a wonderful, wonderful program, and there's really nothing like it in the U.S. That difference between not just being able to have access to a space to walk through, but actually dig in and and make it your own. It's just so important. Even city culture is really wonderful. Yeah, I looked into the history of allotments when I was putting the um, edible gardening course together because I was really interested in that history of how we gardened in the past, you know, as medieval peasant was really um, access to land then was, you know, there was common land and which was essential for people's survival. And then when the land became enclosed, the common land was effectively taken away eventually in the Victorian times, people realised it was an issue that people didn't have access to land. And that's really how the allotments scheme evolved. And yeah, there should be more of them, particularly in the city. I've got a friend in London who, you know, the the waiting list for the allotments opens on a particular day and people queue from seven o'clock in the morning just to get their names on the waiting list. Right. And they might be allocating allotment years later. So it's a shame there aren't more of them in cities. Yeah. I think it's so key what you said is that this, the allotment being the place that was yours as opposed to the housing, which kind of you move within, you know. Yeah. Even mentioned a few experimenting in the garden with different plants. Do you have anything that you are planning to experiment with anew this season or this year? Well, there's always new projects going on. So, yeah, I really like thinking of this patch of land as a resource, not just for me to learn, but but through the workshops, it enables other people to use it as a resource too. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I last year I planted a a little mini forest garden, just, you know, because I wanted to show people how, how you could apply forest garden thinking in quite a small area with the layering of the different sorts of plants so this winter we're going to plant the second part of an edible hedge Mm -hmm. so yeah I really like that as a a concept you know whether that becomes edible for me or edible for the birds right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and, and I've created a whole new area for propagation sort of extended the edible garden really so I'll have more space for taking cuttings and and growing on seedlings and then there's also another space kind of up the hillside which I haven't quite decided on yet but I think it's going to be a mix of ornamentals and edibles kind of Mm -hmm. mixing them together 
because the the existing edible garden has got raised beds so in in some senses it's quite a traditional format Mm -hmm. so yeah I was just thinking it would be interesting to use edibles in a more informal way yeah absolutely and with all sorts of things so what did you include in your edible hedge um I've got amelanchia damsons dog rose wild plums crab apples wonderful quite quite a mix going on yeah and can you tell a little bit more about the forest garden how did you kind of conceive of the layers well, I've got an amelanchia there too, which is a, an amelanchia alnifolia, which I tracked down after listening to. There's a really wonderful essay by Robin Wall Kimmerer again mm-hmm. about that particular amelanchia and talking about the fruit that it gives as a gift of nature. So that's centre of that particular bit of the forest garden. And I've got various currants, Worcesterberry, different types of edible honeysuckle so there's a shrub layer also some perennials like sorrel Mm -hmm. strawberries but yeah and ground covers like alpine strawberries Mm -hmm. really good for weed suppression as well so yeah i'll be building that up over the next few months wonderful so that's the upper story then shrub layer and then ground that's wonderful and then ground cover as well yeah great well that's fantastic do you have anything that you are hoping to try that is new in the either edible or perennial department one thing i've just received an order from the heritage seed library Mm -hmm. and i decided to grow more beans for drying this Mm -hmm. year that's a really good way of having a harvest that you can keep over winter yeah. And that provides protein. So, you know, mm-hmm. we have a lot of salads and greens and we have a lot of squash in the winter, and but we're vegetarian. So protein's quite important. That's We grew some last year, which were really delicious as a dried bean. So, yeah, the, the whole order from the Heritage Seed Library is different types of beans. So I'm quite excited Ooh. to try that. Yeah. Oh, that's really fun. I love those. I do not have the space for all the unique forms of kale that you can find yeah. on those on those seed levers. I think pretty some of those kales as well. Yeah. yeah. Ones and there's a one, a couple of Nero with a lovely violet rib to it. Those violet ones always get me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sucker for a purple something. Grow <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, Orac at Triplet. That's actually on my list for this year. That's a really good one because the, the leaves are really good as a salad initially. Mm-hmm. And then when they get bigger, you can use them like spinach. Mm-hmm. And then once you've got them, and I'm always leaving to go to seed, really, which they're, they're prolific self-seeders. So I yes. definitely recommend that. But in the spring, <laughs> then they all just come up of their own accord. And mm-hmm. I think, well, I haven't had to sow you anywhere. Yeah. You know, I will weed out the ones that I don't want. But I, I quite like self sown plants in the garden I quite like a bit of randomness you know lots of ornamental things self-seed I've got lots of little violas that come up everywhere so have my straight rows of certain things but in amongst that there's quite a lot of chaos too but yeah yeah. if you like purple I'd definitely recommend the red orange all right, wonderful. <laughs> I'll check that out. Thank you. Yeah, I love the self-seeding. I didn't realize how much I 
almost depend on it as in the garden. I look to see if it is a self-seeder and expect it to do so and it will find the best spot for itself. You know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And some years, you know, it won't appear and then yeah. year you'll have loads. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much. This has been such a pleasure and it's really wonderful to learn from what you are teaching about, even if, if it isn't something that I can always participate in because you have such a wonderful, I think, vision for the garden and the world around it. Oh, thank you, Jill. It's been, been great chatting to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.